Boker Toven, good morning. Thank you to our Parsha Siri sponsors for the year. Our friends Becky and Avi Katz, in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Lili Nishmas, David Ben-Menachem, Manish. Also this week, our Parsha class is generously sponsored by Yitzhak and Yechezkela Feldman, in commemoration of the Yurtzeit of her mother, Miriam Matel Bas Yehuda HaKohen, whose neshama should have an aliyah through our learning together. Parsha's Va'era. We're continuing the saga that with, with which we are so familiar and not only do we know the narrative and the storyline, but of course a significant event on our calendar is the holiday which commemorates, and not only does it commemorate as if it's part of the historical past, but we relive. So as we read these parshios, we're not only tapping into a part of our history, but rather we're reading a blueprint for our destiny. Through the understanding of what's unfolding in these parshios, Shmos Va'ira, Bo B'Shalach, and so on, we are able to find the vocabulary and give expression to our feelings of what does it mean to be in exile, and what does it look for, and what will it look like for us to have a sense of redemption. So when we know that to begin with, we read these parashios differently. Not as if it's some novel, not if it's a book or a storyline, even though we already know the ending, but we're reading it actually as a formula for us to live by and to try to extract the insights which will inspire and enrich us as we're going through our own personal Mitzrayim. The word Mitzrayim comes from the word Metzar, it means narrow. Mitzrayim means it feels like the walls are caving in. And many of us, and if not at this time, at different times in our lives, have Mitzrayim moments. Min ha-Metzar karasika. From the Metzar I call out to you, Hashem. When the walls feel like they're closing in, when I'm in a very narrow place, I lean on and I turn to you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So Mitzrayim is not just a geographic description. Mitzrayim is not a GPS coordinate. Mitzrayim is a state of mind and a state of being. Mitzrayim is, we'll get to the notion of when our Das is in Galus, which is what Mitzrayim is really all about. It's the sense of, of an absence of Das. The Baal Shem Tov said, Golos Mitzrayim is chosa lahem hadas leida sheyishbore olam. What was in Golos, etzema Golos, he is takles hadas. As the Pasuk says, Gola amimi bli das. What it means to be in Golos is to have a lack of clarity, to have a lack of hope, a lack of optimism, to feel fatalistic, to feel like the worlds are caving in. It'll never get better for me. I'll never stop being lonely. I'll never have that child. I'll never break through and make that parnasa. I'll never be healthy. I'll never feel well. I'll never. When a person gives up das, when a person forfeits or concedes that sense of hope and optimism, the knowledge, the awareness, the mindfulness, the presence, that's what it means to be in Golas. That's what it means to be in a Mitzrayim. So when we read these parashiyots, it's so critically important to understand we're not reading about an episode in history. And we're not only reading about a place on the map, we're reading about a state of being and finding the solution to how to be redeemed and redeem ourselves from that state of being. So Shmoz Ve'erobah is the journey through the four stages of Geula, only they're not four stages, the Nitziv points out. We call them the Dalad, Lashonos of Geula. The word Lashon does not just mean a stage. What does it mean? It's a good opportunity before anyone's phone goes off and I embarrass them. Please remember, if you have a phone here, take a moment, please turn it off, turn the sound off, because if it goes off, it's going to cost you a lot of money. So Lashonos, a Lashon, doesn't mean a stage. 
Lashonos alasha means a language. It says that Nitziv Dalad Lashonos of Geula means four distinct languages of Geula, which means we're not finding synonyms to describe the same phenomenon. It's not that there were four stages but to one linear Geula. There are four Geulos. There are four redemptions. Four experiences of what we're being redeemed from, which we've all discussed in the past. If you listen online to previous Parshas Ve'era, Parsha Shiurim, and we've talked about what were the four forms of servitude that each needed its own independent redemption from. In other words, it's not binary. It's not that we were slaves and then we're free. And it just took four milestones on the calendar for us to be free. Now, it's not binary. There are four experiences, independent complementary experiences of redemption, four layers or levels of how embedded and bodied we were in Mitzrayim that we needed to climb out from in four stages, the Dalad Lashonos of Geula. There's a fifth stage we've talked about in the past where Menachem Kasher wanted to bring it back and it's Agadah Shlema. He went from describing in the intro to his, to his uh, Sefer on Chumash, the Torah Shlema, what it was like, how hopeless it was in Europe, understanding what it meant to confront the Nazis and what was to come. And then his intro to Haggadah Shleimai describes trying to bring back the fifth cup. He thought it with the state of Israel and the miracle of the Aschalta de Geula that we have today, we are seeing and living the fulfillment of the Hevesi, and we should be drinking a fifth cup at the Seder. He proposed it to the chief rabbinate, and as you know, and as we all experience, it was rejected, it was not accepted. We certainly don't have the complete Geula until we have a Beis HaMikdash and Ashra even though, again, geographically, we are back in Israel and we have a sovereignty over the land and it's almost undeniable there is a period of Ischalta de Geula, but it's not yet time for that, for that fifth cup. So we have the four languages, the four cups of wine correspond with the four languages and the four languages correspond with four separate redemptions, four Geulos that take place, it's not binary. So with that we begin. God speaks to Moshe and he says, Ani Hashem. I'm going to throw out some questions. We're not going to go through all of them. The Parsha describes who is speaking to God, to Moshe. Elohim. And yet when he introduces himself, and he says to him, nice to meet you, my name is Hashem. What happened? So just say, Hashem, or say, but why the inconsistency or the shift from Vaidaber Elohim into Vayomer Elav Ani Hashem? I'm going to train your eye. We're going to go, I got an email with a request from someone. We're going to go throw back to the way this Parsha Shir began when it was just a few of us sitting around the table <laughs> at a different time. There were no uh, reserved seats at that time, no need for them. So we began it as a text based Parsha class and trying to heighten the sensitivity to the text to see the questions that bothered the Rishonim. In medieval times, the genre of commentary was not to write, here's my question and my answer. Rasha, the Rashbam, the Ibn Ezra, the Ramban, they didn't give a sheer quality. Here's six questions and a great answer that's going to touch it all up. They, they, they didn't give that. Right? And they didn't write a Rabbi Menachem Liebtag type of essay where you compare. It wasn't like David Foreman, look at this text and that text and realize how simple it really They had a different style. And they challenged us that when we study the Parsha and we read their commentary to try to identify what was bothering them. What was the question that elicited, that provoked the answer that they gave, even if they didn't give it in a question and an answer type of format. Right? So this was an example. You could just fly through the Parsha or you can actually pause and think 
and thereby ask questions. Why the shift from Elohim to Hashem? So he tells Moshe, I appeared before Avram al-Yitzvah al-Yaakov in a place of Shaddai, but my name Hashem, meaning the name I just introduced myself to you with, Yudke Vavke, that name, I didn't, they didn't know. I didn't introduce to them. Rashi here says, Vaira El, look at Pasuk Gimel, look at what Rashi says if you have a Chumash, because it's astounding. And again, most people will read it and keep going. They do the Shnai Mikra B'Echad Targum and they keep going. Vaira El Ha'avos. Now, let me ask you, what penetrating insight is Rashi offering? The Pasuk says, Vaira El Avram El Yitzchak V'El Yaakov. And in case you were confused, Rashi comes along and says, Oh, by the way, they're the band known as the Avos. And Rashi's big contribution is, in his commentary, is El Ha'avos. What in the world is Rashi adding? Did that ever bother any of you? I didn't think so. You didn't look like it did. So what, what in the world is Rashi adding? He's just telling us, by the way, while the Pasuk just described them as Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, you should know for us, they have a name, they are the Avos. Really? That's what Rashi's adding? What is Rashi adding? So Reb Meir of Primishlam says the following. He says what Rashi is adding is that each of the Avos were holy and righteous in their own right. And they didn't lean on or rely on the Yichus from which they came. Their relationship with Hashem was established as an independent relationship. Of course, it was built on and predicated on and drew from the, the um, efforts of those who came before them. But they had their own relationship. So El Ha'avos, each one of them independently, don't just see them as lumped or linked as one group. They're the Avos. Of course Yitzchak was Yitzchak, he got it from Avram. Of course Yaakov was Yaakov, he got it from Yitzchak. No, that no. Each went on their own journey, each went on their own search mission, each went to find the Kaddish Baruch Hu for themselves. There was once a Rav who came to the Beisden of Rav Chaim of Tzanz, a Tzanzer, and Rav Chaim Tzanz asked him, who is he? So he came to visit, not the Beisden, he came to visit uh, his court. So he said, I am the grandson, I'm an Einako of this Rebbe. So Rav Chaim Tzanzer looked at me and said, I didn't ask you about your grandfather. I said, and who are you? And who are you? So many people, their whole identity is, do you know who my yichus is? You know how often I meet someone who says, I'm, I'm not so religious, but you should know that my grandfather kept a kosher home. My grandmother was very, from a very orthodox family. Or, you know, I may not look it on the outside, my lifestyle, but I really, I'm an Einikel from this Rebbe, from that Rebbe, my, this Rosh Hashiva, I came from this town. That's nice. Who are you? And who are you? That's who they are. But who are you? So that's what Mary Premishlan says. That's the Pshat. El Ha'avos. That it's not just Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov as one lump, the group known as the Avos. But each formulated. We tap into this Dvar Torah each and every day when we dive in the Shemona Esrei because we say, We acknowledge, We have a dual relationship with Hashem. When we're feeling down and out and our journey doesn't end at a destination of Hashem, we lean on and we rely on and we count on 
the history that comes before us, the people who come before us, the amuna and the bitachan of those who came before us. But we also can't just be religious because, oh, my parents and grandparents were. And that's why I go through the motions. And maybe that worked at one time, but it's no longer working now. And it doesn't seem like it's going to work tomorrow. Our children can't just have a frumkite, a Yiddishkeit, uh, uh, an amuna, because, oh, that's where they came from. That no longer works. We have to send them on the journey of the Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov. It doesn't just say Elokei Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov. It's a okay each because each had their own journey of discovery, of finding Hashem. Each had their own relationship with Hashem. Continuing. So the parsha then continues. Again, the four expressions that the Torah tells us here. I'm going to throw a lot of questions because I want to get to certain specific things, but I can't help it. You, you read these, these psukim and the questions jump off the page. First of all, what is na'akas? The Torah has so many synonyms for prayer. Za'akas, na'akas, bitzorina, tefillah, pila, palel. There's so many. So Sha'aram B'tfilah, Rav Pincus has a magnificent sefer called Sha'aram B'tfilah. The Yalkut Shemoni says there are no less than 13 synonyms for prayer. And each one is its own unique but complementary way of connecting with Hashem. A groan, a moan, a krechts is different than a song of hollow. The tefillah at the bedside of a terminally ill patient is different than the tefillah at the bedside of a woman who's just given birth. Someone who's just donated their kidney. They're all different, and there are correspondingly different words to reflect a different form of tefillah. So this is one of them. Hashem says, even when you prayed in certain ways, which I didn't hear, but you're na'akas b'nei Yisrael, that I heard. What are the na'akas? The krechts, the groan. What kind of a tefillah is a groan or a krechts? I'll tell you, it's enough of a tefillah that it initiated the Geula. It was enough. Because until then, they were satisfied with the way it was. They were living with the way it... He says, Anishamati, but I've heard the krechts, I heard the groan. I heard the fact that you can't take it. I heard the desperation. In Sharon Tefillah, Pincus describes how we can turn the groan and the krechts into the tefillah. Instead of just being a miserable, fabisana, groaning, krechtsing person, so when you stub your toe, or when you hear disappointing news, or, or you're having a bad day, turn the krecht into HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Please, make things better. Turn it, transform it into a tefillah, into itself. How you do it, you got to look at Sha'ar Metfila. He heard about what Mitzrayim was doing, Ma'avidim. It should say Ovdim. What do you mean Ma'avidim? The form of the verb is a very strange form of the verb. He heard the groan, the krecht from what Mitzrayim was doing to Bnei Yisrael. What were they doing? They were Ma'avidim then. What does Ma'avidim mean? The score is pretty and our coach Baruch says, Oh, you know that cracked? I just remembered, I made you a promise. Oh, as you're sitting there suffering, crying, as you're going through an attempted genocide, as babies are being thrown in rivers and slammed against trees, and you're turning them into bricks, oh, I just remembered, I forgot that I promised you that I would save you from all this. What is the word va'ezkor? Klape shmaya. Kadesh Baruch Hu forgets. Does the Almighty forget that He has to remember? And what is it that we do that causes or stimulates him to remember? This is all telling Moshe. And the four Lashonas of Geula, the fifth Lashon of Eivesi, which according to some is why we have the cup of Elio and Navi on the table. It is the fifth cup. 
Maybe we should drink the fifth cup, or minimally we should have the presence of the fifth cup. The Ger Rebbe, the Chidush Arim, says, you know what the Krechts was? He says, I heard, what did I hear? Hashem says, I heard that they're done with I'm going to take them under the Sivlos Mitzrayim. We've shared many times, I'm not going to repeat it. Revolbus, Sivlos, is Savlanut. The ability to have patience is the ability to be forbearing, the ability to suffer, sufferance, to be able to live on a line, to be on a line. I could be on a line. Many Jews are in Disney this week on very long lines. It's a Shiva week. That's a Mitzvah Sayom. To be able to be Savlanut, to be patient. To be patient doesn't mean to whistle and skip and be happy while you're waiting. To be patient means that even though it's uncomfortable, I can live with discomfort. To be sovel, to be sivlos, sivlos are the burdens. Savlanut is the capacity to be uncomfortable. Some people need to be comfortable all the time, so they can't wait in line, they think they're different. But we should cultivate within ourselves a savlanut, the capacity to be sovel, sivlos, is the capacity to live with discomfort. The question that Gereb, the Chidush Arim, says is, we shouldn't be able to be patient about everything. Listen to his pshat, what he says. I'm going to remove you, I'm going to take you out and redeem you from the Sivlos Mitzrayim. What are the Sivlos Mitzrayim? It's the savlanut you have for Mitzrayim. You've been too patient. You've been too accepting. You've been too passive to a reality and a condition that you should have no patience left for. Sometimes we're too patient and we're willing to accept things. We tolerate the intolerable. We're patient for the things we should have grown impatient for in order to be able to stimulate and make a change. That's Hashem says. I heard the groan is that all these years, 210 years, you've been able to withstand. 210 years, you've been willing to live with a certain life. But we're done. Mitachas sivlos mitzrayim means mitachas savlanus mitzrayim. You should no longer be willing to tolerate what is happening and what you see all around you, says the, says the Chidush Harim. That's what it means. That's what it means. Okay, so the four expressions of Geula. Let's go. We're flying through the Parsha now. I'm going to take you to this land. It's the land I promised to Yaakov. And I'm going to give it to you as a Morasha. What's a Morasha? What's a Yerusha? What's the difference? It's Camp Morasha, not Camp Yerusha. What's the difference between a Camp Yerusha? What is, what is the difference between a Yerusha and a Morasha? So a Yerusha is yours. You inherit it, and it's yours to do with it what you want. A Morasha you inherit, and it's your responsibility to safeguard it until you transmit it to the next generation. A Yerusha you inherit, you want to spend it, you want to plow through it, you want to lose it. It's not very nice, not very kind to your children and grandchildren, but you're entitled. It's your Yerusha. Do with it what you want. Put it all on black, 22, whatever you want to do. It's all yours. But a Morasha, you are the steward of until you pass it on to the next generation. I think last time I told you this before, I told you in the magazines, you see an ad for this expensive watch. I don't even know its name. It says you never really own one, you just take care of it for the next generation. What's it called? I can't even pronounce that. I'm not eligible for one. You never own it? It's a brilliant marketing ad. It says you'd never spend that money on yourself. You'd never spend that money on yourself. But it's not for you, it's for your grandchildren. Spend it, because you're just going to watch it for them. It's so brilliant. Lahavdel, lahavdel, lahavdel. That's the idea of a morasha. 
A Yerusha is, you just inherited a boatload of money, your great aunt died, she had no children, <laughs> buy yourself for the watch, it's an expensive watch, go enjoy it. That's a Yerusha. That ad you don't see. You just inherited a boatload of money, wasted on our expensive watch. That's not an ad you're going to see. But a Morasha that says, you got money, you know what? For your grandchildren, buy something nice that you'll safeguard for them and they'll safeguard for others. It is a, it is a Morasha. So Moshe speaks to Klaid, and what happens? How does that go? They don't listen. And why don't they listen? They're not able to answer. We've studied the Orachayim in the past, and we studied what the Imre Chaim, the Vizhnitzer, says on this in the past. And while I'm tempted to repeat it to you, there's a lot more to say, so listen online to what we've said in the past. But, but it's a phenomenon that we all live by. Sometimes we are so disillusioned, so disenfranchised, so, so, so depressed and despondent, so hopeless and helpless, that we can't even hear the message of hope. The answer, the solution is right in front of us. Somebody is willing to help. Or somebody is willing to offer a solution, but that backbreaking burden, that overwhelming, we're not even able to hear. We can't even imagine. We can't even dream of a new reality. Shem says to Moshe, "Come speak to Paro." It's time to send. By Moshe, he goes. He says, "How are they going to listen to me? I have a speech impediment." There's no less than four times in these opening parshas of Sefer Shmos that Moshe goes with the whole I have a speech impediment routine. And I call it a routine because the Ribbon Shalom, the creator of the universe, the omnipotent infinite being has said, this is your job, your mission, it's why you're here and I will be with you. Last Shabbos we spoke in Shul about what happens when a person tries to deny or avoid their mission, it follows them. What we are meant to do and who we're meant to be and what the world is waiting for us to achieve, we can't retreat, we can't disappear into a desert for 40 years. Because Baruch is going to follow us there like that dollar bill followed with her name on it from the Rebbe, followed that woman in that story that we told. So it follows Moshe, but Moshe still invokes the same argument. We saw it last week, we see it this week, we're going to continue to see it. He keeps turning to Hashem. Could you imagine? Your boss says, I need you to do this. And you give him 10 reasons why you can't. You're going to get fired. This isn't your boss. This is a Kaj Baruch Hu. He says, Moshe, you know why you're here, why I created you, why I brought you to earth? To fulfill this mission. Moshe says, mm. No, I don't think so. I'll take a pass. <laughs> ask someone else. You're God. Find someone else. You could ask someone else. You could find someone else to be your agent. Not me. Not me. So what's going on over here? What is he advancing in the argument? And how does HaKadosh Baruch Hu respond? And why Taka was he made that way? Why couldn't HaKadosh Baruch Hu make the person who needed to be the best orator in, in all of history? Why would he give him a speech impediment? These interactions of Moshe, these speeches of Moshe with Paro become the precedent for liberation stories throughout history from that time until today. This week, yesterday, the banks and the stock market was closed because it was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And who, whose message did he draw from and invoke in his passionate speeches that created a civil rights movement? It was Moshe Rabbeinu. Countless have throughout history and countless yet will. So the person who is going to deliver the most important speeches in all time, that's the person that Akash Baruch Hu gave a speech impediment to? And were there no speech therapists in Midian or in Mitzrayim? Moshe couldn't work on that lisp in the 40 years he was in the desert? Couldn't watch a YouTube video or hire a speech therapist? No young Jewish women who had become speech therapists yet? Or men? Or men? He couldn't correct it? So why does he have it? Why does it never get corrected? We never see Moshe say, you know what, God, you win. I'll do it. 
but could you do me a favor? Let me offer this tefillah. Ribbon Shalom, heal my speech impediment. Moshe never asks for it to be corrected. Never wants for it to be repaired. He's able to daven for everyone else. He doesn't daven for that. I always wonder, you ever get a bracha from a Rebbe? But then they tell you the Rebbe is not a vet. He's got the flu, he's got a cold, his foot hurts him, he's going for surgery. I would say, just give yourself a bracha. If he's able to heal everybody else, they never understand that. But anyway, Moshe Rabbeinu, why doesn't he ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu? I'm getting brachas for, for Gantz Klai Yisrael, so heal me, because then I'll be better positioned to do your bidding. I'll be a better speech maker, a better orator. So what's going on with this Hain Ari, Ani Ari, Aras Vasayim? So in the Rabbi Soloveitchik Chumash, it quotes Rabbi Soloveitchik, appropriately, as saying, Earlier at the burning bush, Moshe argued he was heavy of tongue. Why does he repeat the argument here? And here the Rav invokes the words of the Zohar. The Zohar says the following, Moshe was in the grade of voice and the grade of utterance was in exile. Hence he said, how shall Paro hear me, seeing that my utterance is in bondage to him? I being only voice and lacking utterance. Therefore Hashem joined him with Aaron, who was utterance without voice. When Moshe came, the voice appeared, but it was a voice without speech. It lasted until Klai Yisrael approached Arsina to receive the Torah. Then the voice was united with utterance and the word was spoken. As it says, Hashem spoke all these words. There's a difference between a voice and the words that the voice forms. What he's calling voice and utterance. Bondage, servitude, is identified with the absence of both word and meaningful sound. Total silence. Dibur, the ability to speak, was in Golis. We live in a country, live in a world where we celebrate freedom of speech. One of the definitions of freedom is the capacity to speak your mind, to say what you think, to speak without being called on, and without fear of punishment. In Mitzrayim, there was a gullus of, we spoke about the gullus of Das, but there was a gullus of Dibur. Being in servitude and in bondage means you can't speak. You can't speak. In fact, Svasemis writes, all the Rebbe's right, that the holiday in which we celebrate the redemption from the servitude of speech is called the holiday is called Pesach, and the word comes from Pesach. The mouth speaks. The whole idea of Pesach is we've regained the ability to speak. What do we do the whole night? We don't stop talking. Some are makbed the whole year. They're machmir. But at least Pesach night. More, speak more, keep talking, keep dialogue, keep asking questions. Talk, 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 talk. Unlimited minutes, Pesach night. Why? Because it's Pesach. We've come out from a place where we had to sit in silence, where we had to be obedient, where we had to respond. And speech, we found our voice. You know when you talk about somebody who's been abused, you talk about somebody who's been marginalized, you talk about somebody who's been manipulated, and you say, they found their voice. What does it mean they found their voice? They had laryngitis? They found their voice means they had the courage, they had the strength, they had the space to be able to speak up and speak out. And that's Pesach. The mouth speaks. Because what was in bondage was Dibur. What was in bondage was Sicha. The ability to speak was our sense of coal. Before Moshe came, there was not even a single sound. No complaint was lodged, no cry uttered. The men kept quiet when they were mercilessly tortured by the slave drivers. Torture was taken for granted. They thought that that's the way it had to be. The pain did not precipitate suffering. They were unaware of any need. 
When Moshe came, the sound or the voice came into being. Moshe, by defending the helpless Jew, restored sensitivity to the dull slaves. Suddenly they realized that all this pain, anguish, humiliation, and cruelty, all the greed and intolerance of man vis-a-vis -vis his fellow man is evil. This realization brought in its wake not only sharp pain, but a sense of suffering. With suffering came loud protest and cry, the unuttered question, the wordless demand for justice and retribution. The dead silence of non-existence was gone. The voice of human existence was heard. So in other words, they went from passively and obediently and silently simply absorbing whatever was being done to them. When they met Moshe, that turned into a na'akas b'nei Yisrael. Now they found a voice in the sense of a groan and a krechts and a cry, but it was still wordless. They weren't able to articulate. Why hadn't they cried before Moshe acted? Why were they silent during the many years of slavery that preceded Moshe's appearance? Says the Rav, they had lacked the need awareness and therefore experienced no need, whether for freedom, for dignity, or for painless existence. They did not rebel against reality. They lacked the tension that engenders suffering and distress. The voice was restored to them at the very instant they emotionally discovered their need awareness and became sensitive to pain in a human fashion. Moshe's protest precipitated this change. We've seen this in our time. There are movements which shine a light. Sunlight is the greatest disinfectant, said Justice Brandeis. But there are movements that shine a light on injustices that had been tolerated and happening where no one had a voice. And when in society, all of a sudden, we introduce the pain and suffering and we give a language to that need, now a movement finds its voice to stand up and to say, we won't tolerate the intolerable. We've seen that in our own time in certain ways of behaviors that were taking place or are taking place that are incorrect, that historically, until now, people suffered in silence for fear of retribution, of not being believed, of not being able to speak out. Even Moshe the Zohar emphasizes, who helped the people move from the silent periphery to the great center, did not acquire the word until he and the people reached Har Sinai. Although Moshe had the existential awareness of need, he had not yet discovered the logos of need, which that had been chosen to be the, uh, which in turn have endowed him with the charisma of speech. When the Almighty advised him that he had been chosen to be the Redeemer, Moshe was reluctant to accept the mission because the word was not yet given to him. Therefore, he was slow of speech. Though Moshe had protested, he had killed the tyrant, rebuked the wicked Jew. He lacked the logical understanding of the teleology of the Gullus experience, as well as firm faith in the destiny of the slave community. He did not believe that those slaves would ever be liberated. Hence, while Moshe and with him the whole community had already broken out of their silence, they had yet to find the word. Only at Harsinai, was the Logos, but the word and knowledge revealed to him. He finally understood the covenantal past and beheld the vision of a great future whose realization was dependent upon him. So Rabbi Salavitchik is suggesting that when he says, Ani what he's suggesting is that Moshe didn't have a speech impediment. What was he lacking was the language, the vocabulary. Until the Torah had been given to us with a set of ideals and values, Moshe said, Ani I'm a limited vocabulary. How can I go to Paro? How can I advance an argument? How can I advocate for a movement when I don't know what it's about? And I don't have the language and I don't have the power of persuasion. I can't advance a compelling statement. I can't be the spokesperson because I'm aroused for Zion. Until the Torah was given at Sinai, I didn't have the toolbox to be able to do the shlichus that you're asking me to do. So it goes from silence of the slave suffering to the krechts, the groan, the moan, the, the ability to at least recognize that there's something missing, there's an injustice, that there's pain and suffering that deserves redemption. 
and then the language which can create the redemption or the fulfillment of that redemption, which in this case was, which in this case was Har Sinai. But I want to offer you some answers of why, why Moshe was that way, Aras Vasayim, to, to begin with. Where did it come from? And how did it develop? And how did it develop? And again, he says this in four places. Perek Dal, Pasuk Yud, Perek Vav, Pasuk Yud Beis is our Pasuk, and he's going to say it again shortly. In Perek Vav, Pasuk Lamed, Moshe keeps coming back to the Ani Aras Vasayim, Kvad Peh, Kvad Lashon, he has different formulations, but all the same thing. God, I'm not your man because I have a problem. So perhaps the most famous among them is the Ram. Art Scroll, I think, just put out a translation of the Drosh's Ram. I haven't seen it, but it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be wonderful. So it's worth reading this Drosha. It's Drosh Gimel. It's the third essay in the Drosh's Ram. The Ram is Rabbeinu Nisim, his commentary on the Gemara, one of the great of the Rishonim. So he has a Sefer of Drosh, the Drosh's Ram, a collection of his of his homiletical talks, not only his Talmudic insights. And in the third drasha, he says the following, and I think we can appreciate this in our time too. He says, you know, sometimes there's a leader who emerges on the stage of humankind, who has charisma and oratory skills and demagoguery and, and magnetism and the ability through that power of language to make promises or describe a reality or get a cult-like following to get people to suspend their thinking and simply submit to the movement of that person. Where there no longer is it about the substance of what they're saying, but it's about the person who's saying it who can lead anyone to follow and believe what they're saying. We've seen that in our time as well. Charismatic individuals who take the stage and make promises and using their charisma and their magnetism, they're able to get people to stop thinking about what they're saying and just follow and join their movement. Says the Ram, the Ribbon Shalom wanted Torah to speak and stand for itself. The truth of Torah, its authenticity. Torah is real. Torah is everything. Because Baruch Davka, the Almighty, specifically said, it's not about the charisma, and it's not about the magnetism, and it's not about the flowery language, and it's not about the poetic description, and it's not about the passion and the enthusiasm, and it's not about the vigor with which you communicate. It's the substance that matters. And how could he best communicate that? By specifically choosing someone with poor oratory skills and a speech impediment and saying, you're the one who's going to transmit the substance. Because then it'll all be about the substance. When the substance is so real and so true, then a person will examine it and accept it and be moved by it and transformed by it, no matter who the messenger is. So says the Ran, because Baruch created Moshe with a speech impediment in order to be able to also, in perpetuity, be able to in perpetuity bevorn or rebuff a person who would say, ah, Harsinai wasn't real. That whole thing was manufactured. Moshe and a whole stage crew put together that event. And he just got up there with a microphone. He was able to pull the wool over anyone's eyes because he was magnetic and charismatic and had an incredible ability to uh, communicate. And there was nothing real. Hashem says, really? That's what it was about? Ask anyone who was there. He's the worst speaker ever. <laughs> he was the worst speaker ever, but it was the most unbelievable speech. The most unbelievable speech. I have a personal pet peeve. It happens all the time. You could have two speakers almost back to back, and one says next to nothing. Real fluff with no depth and nothing sophisticated. 
but they said it with passion and their arms were flailing and they moved around the stage and they raised their voice and they were jumping and pumping their fists and everyone walks out and they say, Rabbi, that was the most amazing speaker. And I say, really? What did they say? I have no idea, but it was incredible. It was incredible. Well, you know, what do you think about differently now than you did before? Nothing, but it was unreal. What are you going to go home and tell the people who weren't there? What could you repeat from the speech? I'm not really sure, but it was amazing. We have to bring him back. It was amazing. I don't care what it costs, it was amazing. And then you'll have somebody, brilliant, erudite scholar, who happens to have poor communication skills, doesn't flail their arms, doesn't raise their voice, doesn't modulate, doesn't pace the bima. They simply communicate a deep, sophisticated, brilliant idea People are like, Rabbi, that was terrible. <laughs> never, please, never bring him again. It's horrible. I don't care if he paid to come, we wouldn't let him come. <laughs> and then I sit there as an audience of both, and it's so disappointing. So the Ran says, because Baruch Hu wanted the Torah to speak for itself. He didn't want people to walk away from our Sinai. What did it say? I have no idea, but he was amazing. He was screaming and yelling and passionate and enthusiasm. Kodesh Baruch Hu says, I'm going to take the worst speaker ever. I'm going to give him a speech impediment. I'm going to make him have a stammer and a stutter and slur his words, and he'll deliver the Torah. And why will he be delivering the Torah? And why will he be the Redeemer of Israel? Because no one for all of time will ever accuse this of having been something fake, that there was no substance, that there was nothing real. That's the Ran's understanding. And we should all be very wary in our time. I'm not just talking about the speakers who lack sophistication, who just flail their arms, but the highly charismatic personalities who garner cult-like following, we should be very wary and very careful. Of them, we've had several of the best scandals in our time, both within the Torah world and outside the Torah world. That doesn't mean that if you're charismatic and you're a good speaker, automatically no one should listen. But it means that we should evaluate and measure based on substance, not only based on form. The Ran says the Rebbe Shalom took away the form so that we would especially see the substance when it came to the transmission of Torah. The Shlach Kadosh, the Shlach Kadosh, Yeshayah Levi Harutz, quotes the fascinating Medrash. We all know this Medrash. Oy, we're barely getting through anything. Let's quick pick this up. The Shlach Kadosh says the following Medrash. We all know the Medrash. What does the Medrash say? Medrash says that Moshe is born, he's in the basket. Bisya Basparo saves him, brings him back to the palace. And she used to kiss him and hug him and, and was affectionate and loved him and smothered him and muttered him because there was an adorable little baby with a shining face of purity who was now in this otherwise very corrupt and contaminated palace. And he stood out. So what happens when the parent sees the child who loves the baby? What does the parent do? Oh, give me, I want to mutcher and hug and smush and kiss and cuddle with that baby. So who's doing that paro? And when paro takes the little baby Moshe and is bouncing him on his knee, what does little baby Moshe do? What does the little baby do? He takes the crown off of paro's head and he puts it on his own head. So meanwhile, Paro's smiling and giggling and taking selfies and putting it up on his Instagram page. Look at me, I'm a relatable king. I'm bouncing a baby on my knees, taking my crown. Isn't it adorable? And Bisibas Paro is self-promoting on her Instagram page. And meanwhile, the magicians are sitting here, his advisors, his cabinet's watching and saying, oh my God, we've seen through our sources that there's going to be a redeemer of Israel born. And look at this kid. He's taking the crown off Paro, putting it on his own head. This is more than just a cutesy moment. This is something that's uh, prophetic. And we've got to stop it. There's a problem. 
But you know, if we go to Paro and say, get rid of that baby right now, this adorable, cute little stepson of mine, uh, adopted grandson of mine, no way. So they devise a plan and they put a pot of gold, we all know the Medrash, a pot of gold and a pile of coal, and they let this little baby, and they say to Paro, like if the baby goes for the gold, the baby's going for your gold. The baby is going for your crown. This baby is a redeemer of Israel. We've got to eliminate him. But if the baby is so foolish and so stupid that the baby goes for the coal, then we'll know that the baby is not a threat to you whatsoever. Moshe Rabbeinu was no fool. Instinctively, intuitively went for the gold, that which has value in life. But the Malach Gavriel came in the last moment, pushed his hand and steered him to the coals, which he touched to his mouth, and he became kvad peh. He became, he became, had speech impediment. Says the Shlach Kadosh, fast forward 80 years. 80 years. You know why the Rebbe Shalom did that? Because it compounded the pain of Paro. It was like the sweetest irony that the Rebbe Shalom is watching. That this man grows up 80 years later and he comes to the palace and with his voice and his speech impediment, he starts demanding of Paro to let the people go. And Paro says, one second. I recognize this stammer. I recognize this stutter. I recognize this voice. Oh my, this is the adopted grandson that I raised in my own palace, that I treated as, my, treated as my own grandson, that I foolishly never accepted that he was a threat to my own crown, and now he's the one who's going to bring me down. It says the Shlach Kadosh, HaKadosh Baruch Hu orchestrated it to be the sweetest moment of irony and revenge against, Par- against Paro. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Rebbe Shalom, is really in charge, that he's orchestrating and manipulating everything. And what looked like in a moment was a foolish gesture by this baby, 80 years later, that baby used that speech impediment and ultimately became the redeemer of Israel. There's a third interpretation. And uh, has anyone here read Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath? It's a fantastic book. And in the book, Malcolm Gladwell basically suggests each chapter is telling a different story that reveals or that he believes supports his thesis, which is that very often what seems like a liability is really an asset. And the one in the picture who looked like they were the underdog really had the advantage. And he interprets the whole story of David and Goliath that way. We once gave a shear, multiple interpretations, and including this one. He quotes actually Israeli researchers who studied that you can, if you're an expert with a slingshot, and they studied based on the text in Shmuel about David and Goliath and the distance between them and so on, you can actually sling a rock from a slingshot at the speed of a bullet. And if you understand that Goliath, who was exceedingly tall, and yet the Pasuk describes couldn't see, so he says, come closer so we could have hand-to-hand combat, he had this disease of the thyroid, which makes you very tall but creates blindness. Oh, it's a fascinating book. And he basically, when you finish that chapter, you're like, Oh, it's obvious. Goliath had no chance against David. There was never a chance. And that's the whole thesis of the book, and he shows it in many ways. For example, the most successful and famous litigation attorney in America today is someone who had dyslexia and barely made it through law school. Wasn't able to read one book, which is a pretty important skill set to have to get through law school, and instead relied on listening more intently in class and listening in on study sessions of fellow students. And basically, again, that, that chapter ends and you say, oh, it's not that the guy with dyslexia had no chance of being a successful litigation attorney. It's that, of course, he was going to be the best litigation attorney in the world because when everyone else is, is addressing the, uh, the jury or addressing the people on the stand, you know, they're listening just to the surface of the words. 
but he's been trained to listen more intently and to hear beneath the surface more than anyone else. Of course he's the best. That's the whole thesis of the book. Go read it. I don't get any royalties from it. But I think that you could read the same story here, is that Moshe's, Moshe's speech impediment was not actually a liability. It ultimately emerges to become his asset. It doesn't make him the underdog. It puts him in the position of strength to be able to play the role that he does, either for the reason of the Ran or this reason of the Shlach Kadosh. But I want to share one last reason with you and then we'll move on, is the reason of the Maharal. The Maharal writes this in his Gvuras Hashem, Perch of Ches. The Maharal says the following. He says, you know, we are an Hashem that's housed by a body. And there's a balance, there's an equilibrium between the two. The body is the instrument that gives the neshama, the soul, expression in this world. It enables us to speak, it enables us to have free will and so on. Says the Maharal, the bridge between the world of spirituality and physicality is the power of speech. Speech enables us to take our ideas and our thoughts and our feelings and give them expression in this world. It's how we communicate, it's how we create, it's how we design, it's how we build, also how we can destroy but speech is the bridge between the world of spirituality and the physical world. Moshe having a speech impediment is essentially, Moshe is so heavily weighted towards his soul, towards being a spirit, that he struggles to express it in the physical world. Says the Maral, speech is the capacity to blend the two. But the person who's too spiritual, who lives too much in the heavens, struggles to find expression down here on earth, struggles to live in this world. If you fast forward to Parshas Chukas, which we're not right now, but I took this Maharal and I'd like to suggest that's what happens when HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, elasela, speak to the rock, and Moshe hits the rock, and Hashem says, you can't come into Israel. Why? Why is he telling him to speak to the rock? So many miracles have happened, and they've involved physical interaction. All of a sudden, speech is, is, is the only way. Speak to the rock? So I'd like to suggest that Kosh Baruch was telling him Moshe, Moshe, three times you claimed you had a speech impediment. Three times you tried to get out of being my messenger. Three times you said you're not fit for leadership because you can't communicate. We're about to go into the land of Israel and I want you to lead them there. But you know what the land of Israel is? It's a unique place on earth. It's the bridge between heaven and earth. You have mitzvos, hatuluyos, ba'aretz. Outside of Israel, dirt is just dirt. And mitzvos are mitzvos. But only in Israel can you elevate dirt, soil, earth, to becoming a mitzvah. Mitzvos hatliyos ba'aretz. Right, the mistake of the Maraglam was they wanted to enter Eretz Yisrael, but they wanted to maintain their kola life. Learn all day and have, have, have it rain from above. Or from your parents, or from your grandparents, or from wherever you want it to rain. I said, we want to sit and learn for longer. So give us divine protection, the Ananiya Kwa'a Kavod, and give us divine sustenance, the Man and the Slav, and let us just sit and learn. The Rebbe Shalom says, do you not get what Eretz Yisrael is? Eretz Yisrael blends heaven and earth, spirit and physical. Eretz Yisrael is a place where you're going to set up an army, and a judicial system, and a police force, and you're going to farm the land, and it's going to have mitzvos, leket, shikha, and peya, and trumos, and maestros. Hashem says, don't you understand? I didn't create a world for you to be purely spiritual. I created a world for you to find the blend between the two. That was Yaakov's dream in Beit El of the ladder. That's Rosh Magia Shamaima. But it starts here on earth. Our, that dream, Anochi Lo Yadati, wakes up and he says, What? The spirituality in the earth, on the farm? 
in the police station, in the courtroom, in the business, at the gym, in the supermarket. I didn't realize. I thought Ruchni Yislachud and Gashmi Yislachud. I thought they were separate. The idea that you find them blended together, I didn't know. And that's Eretz Yisrael. Am Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, Torah Yisrael is us living this blueprint of how to blend heaven and earth together. How to create that bridge and that bond between the physical and the spiritual. How to be able to elevate and enrich everything physical to transform it and to imbue it and endow it with a sense of spirituality. So to be able to do that, you have to be rooted here on earth. You have to be Sula Mutzav Arza, Varosha Magi Hashemaima. Moshe's problem is, he's Aral Svasayim, Sfat Peh. Says the Maharal, what does that mean when he struggles with speech? He's too much Rosha Magi Hashemaima, not enough Sula Mutzav Arza. So Kodesh Baruch Hu says to him, we're about to go into Eretz Yisrael, it's the place where you most need this skill set, this capacity to blend the two. So let me see whether you've learned how to speak. Vidibartim elasela. And what does Moshe do? He smacks the rock. He still hasn't found his voice. He still isn't able to communicate because so beautifully, it's really the shvach. It's really a compliment to Moshe. So spiritual is he that he still hasn't learned how to speak. And therefore, Hashkadosh Baruch turns to him and he says, you can't come into Israel not as a punishment, but as a reality. The leader for an Eretz Yisrael lifestyle has to be a leader who's grounded on earth, but his head goes up to Shemayim. Who is that leader? Yehoshua Mishares Moshe. Who's learning Nachyom? Who started the new cycle? You're in Sefer Yehoshua right now, and you know that Yehoshua is the embodiment of that. Yehoshua used to clean up the classroom after Moshe. He'd wipe off the blackboard and arrange the chairs, the Medrash says. He was rooted in the here and now. He knew what had to happen. Moshe couldn't match his tie and his socks and his suit and his, you know. Because he was so, so spiritual. So spiritual. Our, Yoshua could. He succeeds. He's the one who's designed to take them in. So that is the Maharal's understanding or explanation about why, why Moshe is specifically a Ras Vasayim for that reason. Okay, a few minutes left. Pasuk Perikvav, Pasuk Chavvav. Perikvav, Pasuk Chavvav. Continuing. We have now the whole background. God speaks to Moshe and Aaron and he says, Yisrael, I need you to both command the Jewish people and I need you to tell Paro that I'm taking them out. Again, we've talked about this in the past. I just want to bring your awareness to it to ask the question. I'm not going to give you the answer. I understand why Moshe and Aaron are designated to have to go demand of power to let them out. Who else is he demanding it from? B'nai Yisrael. Why, why do they need to be commanded? el B'nai Yisrael. I understand you could say, march into, it's the 75th this week, commemoration, liberation of Auschwitz. March into Auschwitz and demand of the SS and the Nazis to let the prisoners go. But would you say, march into Auschwitz and go barrack to barrack and demand of the Jews that they, they need to go? As soon as they could go, they would go. Why do you have to tell them to go? Aren't they desperate for liberation, for freedom, to be emancipated? Why Vayitzavim? Why do they both have to? Again, I'm just trying to bring to your awareness, when you read a Pasuk, you're allowed to think. You're allowed to ask questions. And not only that, I'll tell you, it's so much fun. Because then you go to the Mepharshim and you say, I wonder, is what's bothering me, did it bother any of them? And then you start to read their parish, and they may not have formulated the question. But all of a sudden you realize, ah, oh, that parish, that, they're answering, it bothered them. It bothered them. So read it differently, slower. Take your time and think. The goal is not to put a check, you read the parsha, done, shnai mekra, done. 
But when you read it, ask yourself these questions and think. Then we have the whole lineage of Moshe and Aaron, because once they've been designated to be the ambassadors of Hashem, we need to go through their yichus, we need to know where they come from. And in this context, the Pasuk says, Perch Vav, Pasuk Chavav, Hu Aaron and Moshe, Asher Hashem, Lahem, Otsiyos, Bnei Yisrael, 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 We introduce it. This is the background of Moshe and Aaron. And then we end it by saying, Hu Aaron, Moshe. So if it bothered you, why did we switch the order? That's what bothered Rashi. Who Moshe Aaron In Pasach of Zion, sorry, the very next Pasach. So we just said, who Aaron Moshe, And now who Moshe Aaron. So which is it? So which is it? So Rashi tells us, Lahagit Shwachim, it's telling us the praise of them both that what? Says Rashi, Yish Mekomashemaktim Aaron la Moshe. Vish Mekomashemaktim Moshe la Aaron. Lomar to tell us, Sheshkulim Keechad. It's telling us that they are equal. What does that mean, they are equal? What does it mean, they are equal? So the Chose of Lublin is a beautiful interpretation. Says the Chose of Yaakov Yitzchak Kurvitz, the Chose of Lublin, the seer of Lublin. He says, you know what it means, who Moshe of Aaron? How could it be? How could two human beings be exactly equal? This one has this challenges, and this one has this blessings. This one has these blessings, and this challenges. You could say, you know, they're challenges, they're similar. Each one has different strengths. We should view them all equally. How could you say they're actually equal? No two people are equal. It's like the Gemara says, Yeshulatzamtzim. So you can't be mitzamtzim that hu Moshev Aaron, Shkulun Ke'achad, that they're exactly equal. How could you say two people are exactly, are exactly equal? So the Chazev Lublin points to the Gemara Chulundaf Peites. The Gemara, say, Gemara says, Godo Mashanemar b'Moshev Aaron, Yosem Mashanemar b'Avram. Dilu b'Avram it says Anochi Afar ve'Efer. Ve'ilu b'Moshev Aaron k'siv v'Nachnu Ma. When it came to Avram, he said Anochi Ka'afar ve'Efer. I'm like dirt and ash. I'm gurnished. I'm nothing. But when it came to Moshe and Aaron, they expressed it even more emphatically. They said, V'nachnu Ma. We're nothing. We're gurnished. What are we? In other words, their humility or their sense of bittel, their self-nullification was even greater than Avram. Says the Chazer of Lublin, you know how two people can be exactly equal? When each is mevatel themselves to say, I'm nothing. They're equally nothing. If two people think they're great, they can't be exactly the same. Someone's greater than the other. Someone's greater in one way than the other. But if both say, nach if both are mevata themselves, now they're equally mevata themselves, they equally nullify themselves to Hashem, then they're equal in the way they view themselves as nothing. Such a beautiful, such a beautiful chazeh. The way that we can become connected and equal with others is not by inflating our sense of self, but by deflating it, but by seeing ourselves as a sense of nachnu ma. Basalavechik also addressed this. Basalavechik, who Moshe Aaron, and he talks about Moshe and Aaron represent two paradigms of Jewish leaders and Jewish teachers, a dual leadership during major periods of Jewish history. Moshe and Aaron exemplified today, he says, by the Rav and the Rebbe, the relationship of a Rav, a Rabbi, and a Rebbe. He says, Moshe is the teacher par excellence. He was not called a king, he was Moshe Rabbeinu, not Moshe Malkeinu. He was, he was a teacher, that's who he was, the paradigmatic teacher, forever called and labeled the appellation Rabbeinu, our teacher. 
Aaron is the ultimate Rebbe, the saint teacher, who deals not only with the text, but on the invisible and tangible soul of the Torah, that he's talking to the person's heart. Moshe's speaking to their brain and Aaron's talking to their heart. It's the Rav and the Rebbe. It is the king teacher and the saint teacher. One communicates with their head and one with the heart. They're not mutually exclusive. Of course they overlap and each has the other, the other skill as well. But where the emphasis is, that's the who Moshe Ba'aron says the Rav here very beautifully. What the Torah is testifying to is that one is not greater than the other. The Rav or the Rebbe. The one who speaks to your head or the one who speaks to your soul. They're both critically important. And Shkulim Ke'echad. Kla Yisrael Yahadus needs both. We need the ones who speak intellectually to us and we need the ones who speak to our heart and tug on the strings of our, of our soul. We need both. Rav Moshe had a third interpretation. We've seen the Chazev of Lublin, the Rav. Rav Moshe has a third interpretation. Who Moshe, who are Rav Moshe? So, Rav Moshe says the following. Who davar tamuah Moshe ya adon anavim v'rabban shakol ha'olam v'yadon nitna Torah eicha amasha Aaron shakol Aaron was great. He's the kohen gadol. He's righteous, pious, virtuous. But how could you say he's as great as Moshe Rabbeinu? Moshe is one of the principles of faith to believe he's the Avon Avim. He says the following: Yesh lefarsh b'shnei drachim. Says Rabbi Moshe, you can understand this in one of two ways. To came in the gam Aaron who b'shlichos Hashem lahotz Yisrael afshe koach Moshe gadol mishal Aaron mikom makom came in the gam Aaron hutzach lios bezeh hein shavim bezeh she bechelik she gadol tzarich lekatan ha cholkim berevach. They're partners. They're on this mission in partnership. And even though there's a senior partner and a junior partner, but if the senior partner can't fulfill the mission without the junior partner, then they split the profit 50-50. Shkulam ke'echad means, yes, someone might be greater than the other, but when we each have our mission here on earth, and the world relies on us to fulfill our part in our mission, then we are equal in the sense that we're equally realizing who we're meant to be. We're equally contributing to the world what we and we alone can give it. So maybe one is curing cancer, and the other one cleans up the sedurim after shacharis. And if you were to look objectively, you would measure one as making a greater contribution than the other. But shkulin ke'achad means they're equal in the sense that each one is doing a role, fulfilling a purpose and a mission. Number one. Number two says Rav Moshe, Kevan da'aron also called yama b'shleimus karatan Hashem is barsha yevshel lasos hushakol kamoshe. When a person fulfills their potential, each one is at 100% of their potential, they're equal. Aye, this one's potential is up here, this one's potential is down here. But if everyone's at 100% of potential, they're equal. Aaron became who he was meant to be, as Moshe became who he was meant to be, and therefore the two of them are, the two of them are equal. The Hasidic Rebbe, Rebbe Simcha Bonama says you have to look at the context in which it's said. In the first phrase, Hashem is charging the two brothers to bring a message of hope, optimism, and salvation to whom? The recipient of the message is? Klal Yisrael. In the second half of the sentence, where the names are reversed, these two great leaders are told to confront and challenge Paro. They're two distinct missions, two different messages, two different forms of messaging. Says Rav Simcha Bunim, one can't deliver one message to all audiences. You have to know what the audience needs to hear, both the message and the messaging. And that's what it means that they were equal. Who Moshe Aaron, who Aaron Moshe, is that you have to know how it will be heard and absorbed, appreciated, how it will be ultimately something which serves to be effective. And a few more things I wanted to get through, including a kliyakar. 
because I promise we're going to get back to the text a little bit. So on your own, look at the Kliyakar in Perak Zion, Pasuk Yid Zion. I want you to know, if you're not going to look at this Kliyakar for this week's Parsha of Eira, the Pesach is coming up, and if you need a good vort for the Seder, this Kliyakar, make a note, Perak Zion, Pasuk Yid Zion, the Kliyakar. Shmos Perak Zion, Pasuk Yid Zion. It is a magnificent insight for your Seder about the whole, when you get to Makos, the kids have run out of Divrei Torah, you're just going to sing a song about frogs, and you're going to come in and you're going to give the most beautiful to make sense of it all. What's Rabbi Yehuda's acronym? That's his big contribution, he made an acronym? What was the purpose of the Makos? Since when does Hashem flex? Remember I taught you that kids use this expression to flex? You know what a flex is? When you, you know what a flex is? Maybe I said it in the Amunashir. A flex is when you say something that was really irrelevant, didn't need to be said, but you were just mentioning it because you were flexing, you were proving. You'd be like, yeah, last week when I was at the White House, so I had the most amazing Diet Coke there. That they had. That's a flex. Like, what, what do you have to mention? That's a flex. HaKadosh Baruch was flexing in Mitzrayim. He could just blink his eyes and the people are out. Mention the word flex to your grandchildren. They'll be very, imp- will they be impressed? Guys, flex. Come on. Or T4. How about T4? Right? So HaKadosh Baruch was flexing in Mitzrayim. He's got to do 10 plagues to bring them out. So the Kliyakar is going to answer all that. Kliyakar is going to tell you why he had to do it this way. And there is a, an amazing pedagogic lesson to the Makos. The Makos are not random. Why he chooses these 10 ways to intervene in nature and suspend nature, they're not random. They're by design. And they're communicating an important pedagogic message, not only to Paro, but to all Kla Yisrael. And you'll communicate it at your Seder when you talk the whole night because it's Pesach. Have a great day.